Welcome to the latest Money Makers podcast. This week, in one of our regular big picture market roundups, Jonathan Davis talks to Charlie Morris, investment director at Newscape Capital, about the latest developments in the UK and global markets and what they mean for investors' portfolios. So, my first question, Charlie, is this We know that uh, Mrs. May is on her walking holiday, thinking about her future and our future. Mr. Trump is in the White House firing people left, right, and centre. But our focus, as always, is on the financial markets and what's been happening there. And there, the story, at the moment at least, appears to be, despite this political turmoil, relatively benign. So where would be a good place to start? Why don't we start with the bond market, where we think all good things start, the most important part of the financial markets. What's been going on there? Well, bonds in the last few years have come down to extremely low yields, yields we're really not used to seeing. And um, and that's particularly true in, the, in Europe and in Japan. Now, in America, they've started to turn the corner. And, you know, these things all seem to work together. And so if America's turned the corner and we start to see higher rates there, then the rest of the world must at some point follow. And indeed, that's the anticipation by the market that's, that's been happening in the last couple of months. So we've started to see yields in places like Germany rise very rapidly. Interestingly, in places like France, Greece and Portugal, where yields used to be higher than Germany, the difference between them has been compressing quite aggressively, telling you in one, in one way or another that Europe's all fine. Now, I don't know how long that will last, but that's certainly the message for the markets today. Well, it's been quite some time since we were able to say that, or at least to take that view. There was a period when people said that despite the fact the Federal Reserve, the central bank in America wants to raise interest rates, the markets were basically skeptical. They said they can't do it or they won't do it. They won't be able to do it, won't be able to get away with it. And we had a kind of rise in the second half of last year, and then we had a bit of a setback this year with yields coming back down a little bit. But what you're saying is that basically this trend is is for real and it's going to persist from here. It is real and it will persist. And I think we have to, at this point, break out into interest rates and real interest rates. Basically, the difference between them is that uh, real interest rates are rates less inflation. So if um, inflation is running at 4% and interest rates are at 4%, then your real rate of interest is zero. Now, right now, we've, we've got uh, you know, pretty low numbers on interest rates and we've got pretty low numbers on inflation. But both of them are turning higher. And I think the um, conundrum behind that really is the price of oil, because in the long term, the price of oil is the rate of inflation. So it could be that central bankers decide that they're going to lead this discharge and they're going to raise interest rates um, faster than the rate of inflation. That's what markets are worried about. But actually, it's more likely that, that the market does the job for them, because um, the price of oil is come about $50 today. Um, and just two months ago, we were all thinking it was going to sink back to where it came from in the depths of 2016. That hasn't happened. So um, it could well be that inflation is uh, stronger than people think. Uh, finally, you know, after an eight-year wait of where is this inflation, maybe it comes through. And if so, that will set the agenda for what policymakers have to do. They will indeed be behind the curve. It is an important point about uh, real interest rates, as you say. But if policymakers are behind the curve, if they don't keep up with the increases in inflation that are coming through, what does that mean for the course of real interest rates? And what is, what is the connection between real interest rates and the kind of returns that you can make as an investor? Well, the way I see it is that um, the, 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 what's happening in the bond markets is, is, is telling what the cost of money is. And so if cost of money is getting cheaper, you know, that ten, tends to be very good for, for low growth assets. So, for example, a bond immediately does very well out of that. Um, also, a bond-like stock, so a, a defensive consumer staple company that makes toothpaste or so on, that company actually is very bond-like in nature. So those tend to do extremely well. But on the other hand, you know, when, when interest rates are rising, that equally is, is bad for them. And, and then you have to ask the question, why interest rates are rising? Is it because we're, we're tightening the monetary system? So, for example, in the late 1990s, there were um, quite aggressive rate hikes above the rate of inflation. Now, that's all the biggest bubble in stocks in history. 
And so people are a bit confused here because, you know, in 1999, you had the biggest um, Wall Street bubble since 1929. But it wasn't driven by the, all of the stock market. It was driven by a small part of the stock market, which was growth stocks. And so growth is a way of, um, of null and voiding the damage of, of higher rates because you can look past that and say, OK, rates are going a bit higher, which is bad for bond. So what? Let's find something that's growing really rapidly and it doesn't matter. Now, of course, dreams then take over from reality and you end up with a bubble and a crash. But, but that's another story. At some point in the 1990s, there was a rational response um, to what was happening. And of course, in the 1990s, we had extremely cheap oil for the entire decade. Um, initially, that fueled a boom in um, parts of the emerging markets, you know, but as it all started to weaken uh, post around 1995 or so, that caused problems there. And we had a crisis in that area. And so you've got to recall that, you know, when we had this environment of strong rising re- interest rates, it wasn't very good for emerging markets, for energy and all those sorts of things. Now, the environment we're going into um, is, is slightly mixed because you've also got to incorporate the concept of value. We all know that stock markets have come a long way. I think the S&P 500 was 666 in 2008 at the low, or was that early 2009? And, um, you know, it's more than trebled. So, so where is the value today? And so even if you have some of these interest rate moves, which support some areas and harm, harm other areas, you know, one has to consider what can go up, not what should go up. Before we we move on to what those might be, are you amongst those who are concerned about the level of valuations now? In other words, people, a lot of people say we're looking at where we are now, comparing it to 2000, as you say, when there was the mother and father of all the stock market bubbles, followed by a crash and recession. Things look expensive now across the board, but I think what you're saying is that you need to be more selective about where you look at valuations and discriminating between that and come to a conclusion perhaps is not that we're not yet in a position which is exactly parallel with where we were in in the year 2000. There are many things that are different. So in the year 2000, we had real interest rates of 4%, you know, 10 years out. So 10-year inflation expectations and 10-year bond yields. They were positive 4%. That means you could sit in an armchair with government bonds earning 4% above and beyond inflation. Now, people would kill for that today. Um, And they fell all the way down to about minus 1% in 2012 and have subsequently turned. And they're about plus half percent now. So we're going from, from minus one to plus half and possibly on our way back to four. I don't know when we next hit four, Jonathan. When do you, when do you think we'll next hit 4% real yields? Probably not in my lifetime. I don't know. Hopefully when I'm a pensioner, probably, and <laughs> yeah, um, looking to, to earn money without any risk. Yeah, exactly. yeah, when you're buying your annuity. So that's a hell of a journey. Now, at that time, back in 1999, stocks like Unilever were dirt cheap. I mean, there was they were just written off as old economy, and all the money swung into growth stocks. Now, we've got a, a bit of a growth stock bubble today, but it's backed up by real profits. Um, yes, the PEs are a little bit high, but the growth rates are high too. And you really can't compare it in terms of uh, what we saw 18 years ago. So, um, you know, I think the growth trade is it continues. And there's lots of exciting stories out there. We've got electric cars and, you know, much of it's hype. Much of it won't be followed by profit. But nonetheless, it's a good story whilst it lasts. But when you look across the market, the only area you can really see value, you know, gold's fair value, that's fine. But but the value trade, you know, you think oil stocks, they're down in the dumps. Um, you've got commodities in general and you've got parts of the emerging markets. And the financials, these are all the areas that are perfectly reasonably priced. Um, and they're a pretty significant part of the economy. So I think there is one major trade that could still work, you know, if we have this um, rising interest rate, rising inflation scenario. Slightly different causes there. I mean, the in the um, the banks and so on benefit from a rising interest rate uh, environment. That's how they make them make more money, basically. But the oil stocks and the resource stocks are saying they've just been oversold. Basically, they've in in the wake of the uh, of the oil price coming down so sharply from a hundred dollar plus to to forty, thirty, even for a brief moment. 
And you just think they've been oversold, basically. Is that right? Well, I think the oil stocks are probably in line with where the oil price is. So, you know, the question really is, is oil itself oversold? And you know, to go back a couple of years, you know, in 2014, we had $110 oil for a, for a while. And that's a pretty sizable chunk of, of global GDP. I think you're talking at about 12% of global GDP represents extraction of oil into the economy. That has subsequently fallen to around 6% of GDP. Uh, occasionally in history, it's been as low as four for brief periods of time. But actually, the, the average is about eight and a half. So, you know, we, we, have to, we have to really believe that Elon Musk's batteries are going to save the world. But one mustn't forget that to make batteries, you need oil. To make wind turbines, you need oil. To make solar panels, you need oil. To do anything, you need oil. And then you've got to drive them around the country using oil. And then to get oil, you need more oil. So in the old days, you used to have a little bit of oil and you'd get 100 barrels back for your barrel. Nowadays, you're, you're getting you know, 25 barrels and falling. And the amount of oil that we consume each year grows consistently for the last 20 years at 1.5% per annum. And this doesn't seem to change. And we're just on the cusp of being a 100 million barrels a day economy. And so these are very, very large numbers, and they can only go up. And I think that there's been far too much complacency, particularly seeing the lack of investment. Now, what we see every year is oil inventories um, surge in the first quarter, and they tend to fall from sort of May onwards, you know, after Easter, um, into the summer driving season. But this year, what's happened is, you know, we've seen the highest ever inventories on record in US data. But they've also, this year, fallen extremely, extremely quickly, and we're now below the equivalent levels of last year. So, you know, what looked like an extraordinarily bearish scenario three months ago has, in my opinion, done a huge U-turn. You can make the case of why it's, the price of oil needs to be higher to sustain. You can make the case of why long-term demand is high. You can see there's lots of short positions in the market um, and all those sorts of things. But the bottom line is that despite rising U.S. production, that oil is now being consumed. So the price has just broken above $50. And that, there's no reason to think that, that will not persist, or at least that it will stabilize and possibly increase from here. So you don't think that actually the uh, all the talk about how much oil is coming through from the Permian Basin in in, in the states from shale oil and from uh, which is becoming cheaper to produce, uh, you don't think that's enough to to sort of re-fix the market at a lower price? Well, I can't I can't make sort of grand predictions off these sorts of data. I mean, everyone's pouring over this data, and the bottom line is the world economy is extremely complex. You know, it's about how much India buy and how much China buy. Um, you actually your marginal buyer. That's really going to change things. Then you've also had a, a recovery in the European economy. There's no spot around the world you could blame for um, weak demand right now compared to what we would have said two or three years ago. So everyone seems to be um, doing all right. Not, not booming, but doing all right. And that's enough, I think, to, to uh, materially change the demand side of the equation. The supply side of the equation, you know, there is rising supply. We've had places like Libya and Iran. Um, I'm getting out of my depths here when I start talking about who the producers are. But, but I do know these countries are, are, are producing more. Uh, American production has risen to nearly 10 million barrels a day. Um, it doesn't seem to go past that number. Um, so have you look at it, you know, somehow the market is voting for higher oil prices. Now, the significance of this is not just the environmental arguments and um, the desire for cheap energy. There's also this sort of strong link between the price of oil and the long-term expectations for inflation. There's no doubt about it. You overlay the price of oil on, on inflation expectations, and then they're highly correlated. And so the bond market will shift on a higher oil price. So far, as no one's noticed because, you know, here we are at 50, we're at 45 just a month ago. And, um, you know, some people are blaming the weaker dollar, coming back to what you mentioned about Trump. Maybe, maybe there's some of that in there. Um, but bigger picture, I think that, you know, we, we are seeing the potential for materially higher prices and at very least, at the very least, the rejection of lower prices. Right. You know, we're not coming back to 30. And in response to that, you would expect 
to see, which we haven't really seen until now, you'll expect to see inflation expectations, in other words, what people in the market are thinking about where future inflation is going. You would expect those to start to to firm up, would you? Absolutely. You know, the press in this country get very excited about the CPI data. And, And don't forget the CPI data is looking at what happened over the last 12 months, which doesn't really matter. Markets don't price off what has happened. They price off what's going to happen. It's a bit like we go to the races and you know, I tell you which one just came in. It doesn't, it's not really particularly helpful information, is it? See, what you want to know is who's running next and what their form is and all that. And, and that, that is what's happening um, uh, with market pricing all the time. And I suppose we've had extraordinarily st- stability in recent years in bonds. Um, you know, you might not think they've been stable, but actually in the last few years, they have been relatively stable. There's been a few jumps. We had a big jump in 2013. We had a bit of a jump last month. But big picture, bond market volatility is lower than it historically has been. And therefore, all volatility is lower than it's historically been because you could price currencies off bonds to a, to a large extent and you can price equities and, com- uh, well, not commodities, but you can price equities off bonds as well. So th- that's why we see low volatility everywhere because of suppression of interest rates. Oh, well, that's a good, that's an interesting point as well, of course, suppression of interest rates. This brings us on to what uh, what the central banks are going to do, because they're the ones who set interest rates at the shorter end of the curve anyway. The market sets them further out in, in time, normally anyway. So what do you think the central banks are going to do? They are, as you say, they're going to be chasing inflation higher, effectively. With their, with I their think so. They, they will be behind the curve, because... Um, despite the fact that many central banks are deemed to be independent, they, they, they clearly are political. They like to use um, they refer to unemployment all the time. And that was going to be a cause to hike rates earlier and unemployment had continued to drop and they haven't hiked rates. And, it, you know, some people are saying, well, the Phillips curve doesn't work anymore. That's some sort of link between wages and inflation. And, and that's probably because of the free movement of people, which comes back to politics again. And so this whole sort of um, neat little network goes around in a circle. At some point, of course, um, if the economy expands, there will be wage pressure. You know, certainly, certainly looking around friends, more people seem to be changing jobs at the moment than normal. And that's something that happens when the, when the, the world's alive. And that in turn will be another kind of inflationary pressure building up, a sort of cost pressure. We don't move for a pay cut, do you? No, exactly. Exactly. Well, before we go look a little more at how you're kind of dividing up your assets and your portfolios, you mentioned how uh, real interest rates had risen from negative to positive, in, but that's in the, in the United States. Yeah. In the UK, that hasn't yet happened, has it? No. We are a special case uh, in that respect, and real interest rates remain negative. In other words, you're getting uh, less than inflation return on, on uh, which, even Which is political. Which is political. So, but what is the explanation of that? Why is the UK so different from, from the US anyway? Why is it different? And is that to do with Brexit or is it to do with something specific to our economy? Or what, what is it? What, what's the explanation in your, in your view? Don't forget, we were one of the first countries to stop QE some, some time ago. The recovery in Britain was actually far superior to the uh, recovery in many, many countries around the world. So we should be proud of that, despite having a pretty deep crisis being a financial economy. But um, Brexit happened in, in, in June of 2016. And then um, QE happened in October. So that was, you know, three months to digest what was happening. The pound was happily um, climbing back above one, you know, one thirty-five or something, looking looking ready to go higher. Um, all was well, and then QE was kicked in. It slumped down to one twenty. Now here we are. The pound's back at one thirty-two, and so the pound's telling you, I, I don't know this QE thing. Why, why are we doing it? We don't need it. We've got a. If you looked at the economic data, 
purely in view of living on Mars and said you, you'd have um, special monetary measures at this point in the cycle, you'd say, no, that'd be madness. And indeed, it is madness. It was supposed to be a temporary thing to um, you know, free up the system during a banking crisis. That banking crisis is, is fixed. HSBC announced yesterday they're returning capital to shareholders. That's not a banking crisis. And in fact, that's many US banks are doing that too. It seems that Deutsche Bank is more solvent than people thought. So you know, even the very worst of them um, seem to have turned the corner somehow or another because time cures. Don't forget, these banks every year make loads of money and so you know time will cure all provided they can stay solvent long enough they'll eventually have their balance sheet fixed and so that seems to be what's happened um, and when you've got a healthy banking system then the economy can 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 work because then you can you know create money and lend to businesses and people and, and so on obviously setting yourself up for the next crisis but that's an entirely different conversation so um you so know, you think that you basically think the bank of england's got it wrong basically they were they they, they overreacted to brexit uh, they've been pursuing the wrong, pulling the wrong lever and going in the wrong direction even, uh, when they should be yeah. gradually uh, tightening monetary policy. Well, we just, we just don't know where this is going to end up, but we've never had such loose policy for so long. And so that's why I keep coming back to the idea that, that, that inflation could be real. Now, inflation normally means the, the devaluation of uh, purchasing power over time. You know? So it's um, how much less your money you're going to have in your pocket in the future. And, and so far, we haven't seen any of that around the world because everyone's been in concert in lowering rates together. So, you have, so you've had some cyclical swings in currencies. The pound is you know, at the low end of its 30-year range against the dollar or against the Deutsche Mark, but it's not into a downtrend. You know, the pound is not dying by any means. It's just cheap relative to the others. And then some of them are a little bit overvalued. The euro is now, the euro, by the way, which you should think of as a French franc, is, is now slightly overvalued. The yen's still a bit undervalued. Um, a lot of emerging mar- market currencies are now pretty, pretty racially priced, you know, things like the Brazilian real and the, and, and, and the rand. But whole, so far, the whole system has kind of held together. Now, the one thing that will change everything is the number one input cost, which correlates to everything that, you know, to do with pricing power, and I get back to oil. So I do think that that's the uh, area of maximum complacency in the economy. You know, we're driving all these wind turbines with storage solutions. I mean, Elon Musk's proposal to Adelaide recently for 30,000 houses was a $50 million battery setup. You know, we're talking about um, $1,300 a house or a thousand quid a house. This is not for free energy forever. This is just to store a bit of alternative energy. Who can afford that? You know, can the man on the street afford a thousand quid per house onto his energy bill for a marginal solution? And, and the answer is that, you know, they can't. And so I think there's going to be a backtrack from this sector. And by the way, when you look across the market at wind and alternative stocks, and very few of them seem to make a profit. And most of them don't even seem to show top line growth anymore. So you kind of wonder whether there's a, um, a detachment between the story that we uh, would like to believe and the reality. And I'm by no means a climate denier. And I, as soon as you mentioned this subject, from the assumes you are. So I'm not coming at it from that angle. And I'm just telling the economic truth that we've got a problem. And, um, and that is the energy supply. Even the electric car, for example, still needs to um, burn coal to drive. And, and renewables, to in other words, renewables um, aren't the answer in either in absolute terms or in economic terms, where there may be a negative impact on the economy, on productivity and so on. They're definitely having a negative impact on the productivity, as shown by ONS statistics last quarter. Um, it's the only area of the, of the country that's really dying. And the government keeps asking why the productivity is so bad, and you can't blame services, and you can't blame manufacturing, which may sound quite well. But then there's this bit called energy, which has uh, gone backwards. And of course, energy is so important because the development and, uh, of mankind and or economic growth in emerging countries or uh, any sort of life expectancy or literacy rate, any nice statistic you care to mention is joined at the hip with energy consumption. So in the UK, as an investor, how do you think about this Brexit process where you've got a government which appears to be more interested in, in leaking against uh, each, itself than in uh, coming up with a definitive approach to the problem, 
but that may be entirely what he expected. I mean, it, it, it could all be just noise, couldn't it? I mean, the question, the fundamental question is whether or not we are able to come to an agreement with the EU over the, the given time period, which may be extended with a long transition period. So w- would you be, would you incline more to the camp that says, well, basically, it's it's too early to form a view about what's, what the outcome is going to be, or would you say that most likely it's going to be benign and I'm not going to waste my time thinking about it? Well, the, mar- the market's telling you it's benign and don't waste your time thinking about it. I think it's all good entertainment for the um, you know weekend weekend magazines that come through. But yeah. other than that, there doesn't seem to be any um, bold action that, that seems to be coming from either end. But we mustn't forget the German industry is on our side, and that's always going to be a powerful um, lobbying group in the background. It does strike me as uh, it would be very strange um, for free trade to uh, not happen between the United Kingdom and, and the European Union, because free trade benefits both sides, even when sides one side's a loser. That's why I hate sanctions so much. It's like the Americans want to punish the Russians for being too Russian. But really, free trade must benefit both sides or it wouldn't exist. I mean, that's the whole point of trade. You share. Exactly. Mutual benefit. Mutual benefit. So your advice would be, I'm putting words in your mouth here, of course, but your advice would be to take less notice of all the stuff you read in the media headlines about the drama of Brexit, the cliff edge, the crisis of confidence that appears to be affecting a number of uh, economic commentators and newspapers, uh, and focus more on fundamentals, uh, as one always should. So let's let's look at how you might uh, you know how you're how you're managing your portfolios. Obviously, you you run a global portfolio. I imagine. I mean, you manage portfolios for UK investors, um, but they are a, a global portfolio, a diversified global portfolio. If I looked at what your kind of core portfolio would look like, uh, what would we see? Well, do you mind if I ask that question? Is the difference between um, a sort of standard sixty forty? Yeah, sure. Um, equity uh, and bond, and, and, and the difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing. I think that probably elevates the point. Just to be clear about that. What you're saying is, that, you know, the conventional standard portfolio has sixty percent in equities and forty percent in fixed income, yeah. in various things, and that's and that's that would have served you quite well over time because they're they're not uh, well correlated, and so when one goes up, the other goes down, and that kind of thing, and that will see you through. Okay, so how would you compare against that? And and to and to make a further comment on that, it's done particularly well because the bond yields have come down, so the bond bit done better than it should have done. Um, we've also had the equity bit do better than it should have done because overseas equities have been boosted by um, a falling pound. And then we've had quantitative easing that's also contributed to tight credit spreads. So many corporate bonds you held have done very, very well as well. So you, looking backwards, you know, our hindsight portfolio has done extraordinarily well yes. in the last few years. Looking forwards, if we raise interest rates, that's not good for the bond bit. If the pound goes up, that's going to be a headwind for global equity returns. Uh, and then if we see a bit more inflation and a bit more risk price into the system, then corporate bond spreads won't do so well either. So I'm not forecasting a crash here. That, that's really not the point. The point is moderation in asset prices and you know, quite a few years of lower returns we've recently become to expect. So what am I doing about it? Well, the first thing is I'm hedging the pound. So I'm always looking for an interesting currency to um, hedge sterling's strength against, you know, for, for forthcoming strength. I believe the pound is worth 150, and it's currently 132. And you're back to 150. And it's on its way back to 150. It will be slow. It will come in fits and starts. But, you know, clearly it's rejecting 120. And all the sort of doomsters who said the pound was going to go to parity, well, they're quite wrong. Yeah. And, um, and you can justify that on hard facts, not just on political views. And so, you know, rising pound, to protect yourself against that, that in some ways means less exposure to foreign assets. But I don't have to do that because um, I, I've got, I can use currency hedging. And currency hedging is a very neat tool, difficult to access for private investors, but a neat tool that fund managers can use, which just means you negate that rise. Now, of course, if uh, the power to go down, that goes against you. So one's very cautious about how they implement this. And right now, I've only got a position on against the dollar, looking to put one against, on against the Swiss franc or the euro. 
um, because the pound is extremely cheap versus those currencies. And yes. no way would one pursue an aggressive strategy of you know buying the Brazilian real or something like that, because um, this is not the point. The point here is to protect the portfolio, um, not to make speculative gains. And so, so that's the first point: ability to hedge the currency. The second point is our bond market portfolio is dull as dishwater. So if I just have um, gilts of two years or under, which don't make me any money at all, but they keep the volatility of the portfolio down because I'm not a 100% equity fund. And at, one, at some point when, when yields are higher, that will change. And you know, I think the, the plan there is to be opportunistic because there will one day be an aggressive sell-off at the long end of the curve. And when there is, it might present a buying opportunity, particularly if those yields materially ex- exceed inflation. So we get a higher real interest rate, not happening anytime soon. So it could be that I have a short-dated bond book for some time. And then finally, I've got uh, four types of equities. Um, I've got the first point is quality. And quality, we don't like that much, apart from reinsurance companies, which are enjoying higher, higher rates. So we've got Markel and Berkshire Hathaway. And then I've got other mainstream stocks, the sort of Unilever-type companies. Now, my expectations for them are pretty pretty muted right now. I think they've done as much as they can can. So I'm more likely to be reducing that. But there's no hurry because they're all great long-term companies. The second bit is gold. I haven't got much gold exposure at the moment, but I have some. And I put polymetal in the other day, um, which has been a very nice trade. And and that's because you know gold's a little bit oversold. But you can't see you can't see a strong gold bull market unless you get real interest rates falling yep. again. Now real interest rates are already low. So just a recap, they've gone from four to minus one in 2012 to plus a half in the states. How would you get them back down in a rising rate environment? You do that by extremely high inflation. So if the oil price went to two hundred dollars and the Fed were very slow to raise interest rates, then gold will go through the roof. So, so that's a hedge against inflation, basically. And that's, so that's, and that's in, this, in this particular context, yeah. Absolutely. So that's, it covers off a scenario, and you've got to question how likely that scenario is. So in my portfolio, that's about 4% of exposure. So right. that means not that likely. Now, if it was 15%, that would, that would mean I'm banging the table thinking this is extremely likely to happen. And so you're always gauging your view of you know, where you are between what might be and where we are. And gold, by the way, is basically trading at fair value. So it's one of those assets you don't have to um, pay a thumping great big premium for, which is quite nice. And then there's the growth stocks. I mean, how can you not own the likes of Google and Facebook and all these things? I've got a milk company in New Zealand called A2 Milk, um, which, which is just growing like there's no tomorrow in China. And, and um, basically, the Chinese don't trust their own milk producers. And if you can find a, a lactose intolerant uh, milk, which they produce, um, and it's been very masterfully branded, then, then off it goes. I mean, that's phenomenal. There are software companies, there are dot coms, all those sorts of things, a bit, a bit of biotechnology. And then finally, the value component. And that's basically banks, oil and commodity stocks. So basically, the last one, looking at the last ones, I mean, your case for those is that they're good value. Or is it that actually they've also got some growth coming through to them? And you're, you're implying that there's a bit of both in those cases. There's you? both. I mean, so if we call that the value trade, the, the area of the market that performs well when inflation and interest rates are rising, that is the area of the market that's, that's most attractive. I mean, if you look at the value versus growth switch, um, value has been consistently underperforming since 2008. I mean, don't forget, between 2000 and, I don't know, 2001 and 2008, value smashed exactly. growth. It was the other way around, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that was in a sort of tightening environment and higher oil price environment. Now we've had the opposite since the credit crisis, and so, so value has been very bad. Now, I had a good year in 2016, you know, when oil went from 27 back to 55. But then the first half of this year, it's been terrible again. So I think that, you know, it all comes back to oil. You know, the area of the stock market that, that really wouldn't crash in a crash. 
is the bit, is the bit, uh, because the crash would be, you know, massive oil and the rest of the market not being prepared for it. This is the one area that would protect you. But again, don't bet the ranch on it. Don't put all your money into oil and banks because something else might happen. I mean, you know, I'm just on the other end of the microphone. I don't know what's going to happen to bond markets over the next five years, but it's something we watch extremely closely and trying to make sense of and apply the, the right amount of diversification. If it looked like inflation was going to take off, not only would I buy more oil, I'd also buy more, more gold. And if it looked like the oil thesis was absolutely wrong, you'd be retreating from both of those areas. And um, would you be piling into more defensive stocks? No, because they're mispriced. They're already very expensive. They're, they're already very expensive. Yeah, so they won't help you even if... Uh, they won't help you, yeah, yeah, even if you get that scenario. Um, growth stocks... The story's too good to end quite yet, as I said. And there's a little bit more here, there and everywhere. But you've got to look harder now um, because the whole the, the rising tide has lifted all boats. But there's, there are you know, opportunities to come and find new stories. But they, it's getting harder. So the natural response to that is to reduce your overall risk position. You know, rather than going for it and say, oh, we're in a young bull market and it's great and had 80% of the equities. No, you, you calm down and go the other way and say it's 55% and I wait for a better day. Because, you know, I'm 46, I'm going to be doing this the next 20 years. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather be a better fund manager over a longer period of time than, than waste one's reputation on a dangerous week. And how do you think this current cycle might end? You could argue that's a very stupid question to ask because we don't know what, how it's going to end. And sometimes they end very sharply, sometimes they end more gradually. Sort of the, the air comes out of the balloon. Gradually, then suddenly. Gradually, then suddenly. There tends to be a sudden moment at some point in the cycle. Yeah. Looking, looking backwards, you always see those, but uh, we, we rarely see them coming. So how do you, how do you address the concerns that people have that, you know, is, is it kind of an emotional sense that this has gone on for a long time, we've, we've had a very good run, as you say, despite the headlines being gloomy for most of the period, yeah. and people being risk-averse or apparently saying they're risk-averse most of the period, and they're worrying about how expensive things are and how, or how expensive certain things are, and there's going to be another crash, and they've got people at the Bank of England saying we're worried about credit getting out of control and we could have another credit crisis. But how do you think this might this actually might end this cycle? I mean, we, does it go on until it stops kind of thing? Is that all one can say usefully about it? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's another really important point to make. And that is that economies and, and, and stock markets are not the same thing. And people were scratching their heads in 2009, wondering why the stock market was going through the roof. People, people couldn't understand in 2011-12, during the Greek crisis, why the stock market didn't crash. It just had a little dip. And um, clearly, monetary policy has been more, more important here than, than the actual outlook. Now, finally, all these years on, we've now got a united planet that's, that's growing in, in, in step. And stock markets aren't loving it really quite as much as you might think, even though the data's pretty good and the earnings are pretty good because it's already priced in. And that's been the expectation that things will be pretty good. So it's hard to imagine the S&P, you know, I'm not a bear, but but it's hard to imagine the S&P, you know, traveling again without having a serious stumble in the middle at some point. And so, um, you know, what would change things would be a change in this monetary policy. Now, under the control of the central banks, under that scenario, it happens very slowly. And, um, you know, probably years, you know, quarter point here, quarter point there. And, um, you know, we, we wind the clock forward 10 years and interest rates are still not normal, um, but they're a bit higher than they currently are. Um, and the, the out of control scenario is um, they got it completely wrong and they went on stimulating the economy for far too long. And there's um, a big inflation problem. And certainly if you read historic textbooks, which all have been torn up, they would tell you there's an inflation problem on the way. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels, including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free, 
If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.